and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. We like cars on films, except it's not always cars and it's very rarely on film these days. It's mostly digital and it's not always films. It's sometimes online stuff, but you know what we mean. We we like cars that move and other stuff that moves and we also like cake. So <laughs> let's go with that. I must apologise that I wrote this intro because I was hungry at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Cake and pies, that's basically what, what we just subside on. Yeah, that's that's actually, whenever I do any testing in my day job and I have to write, like, test test content, it's always cake and pie. If I need a test email address, it's like testman at cake.com. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, oh, man, what, what stuff have you been watching while we've not been podding? Well, I finally joined the world of 4K. Oh, does it mean you have a new TV? I have a new TV. And a 4K Apple TV. I have an Apple 4K TV. I don't yet have an Apple, uh, sorry, a 4K Blu-ray player, so I can't play the disc that you sent me. Oh, that's um, a shame. Yet. But you've joined the world of, of incredibly crisp, high-definition content. Does this mean that you can now watch Formula One races in 4K? No, because I haven't upgraded my Sky subscription yet. Ah, uh, I tell you what, though, and for those of you who do have Sky, if you don't have the 4K option, it is worth it because the detail is kind of eye bleeding and this is only highlighted whenever i stream stuff on my ipad when i'm away from the house and i go oh it's all blurry and i can't tell who's who's what on on the the on-screen graphics it really helps with the the sort of the little logos they've gone to this year because they used to have the colors um Mm. for each team but i think someone in in formula one management has gone no all the colors are two to the same we've got like five teams that have blue so they've switched to using the logos which are equally quite hard to read in some cases (laughs) <laughs> but anyway yeah 4k good standard definition bad i have been spending my evenings going through and turning off all like the motion thing and the local dimming and all of those things that we have to put up with these days so it's been yeah it's been fun i've just been watching stuff for the sake of watching and go oh look isn't it crisp but yeah i i must admit once you've got used to it it can be very hard to watch standard definition content you just spend all your time <laughs> you're looking at it going oh that's compressed really badly or oh, that's really blurry that's just not sharp enough i'm more worried looking at the amazon store going so i'll get the matrix on 4k i'll get star wars box set on 4k i'll get this on 4k i'll get that on 4k i have a rule that it has to be worth it visually to have it as a 4k mm. ultra hd blu-ray so stuff like if it's like a, a rom-com or something like that no stream it whatever doesn't doesn't necessarily <laughs> matter but if it's you know dunkirk or inception or mm. mission impossible or you know mad max fury road which we will get to honestly i have that 4k ultra hd blu-ray staring at me going why haven't you watched me yet <laughs> Maybe that'll be our running gag. It'll be the film that we never get round to reviewing. No, we should get round to it. We really should get round to it. In fact, maybe we'll do that in, in a very upcoming show. But before we get onto that... What are you drinking tonight? Oh, before we get onto that, yes. Uh, tonight I am on I'm on the hard stuff, like the really hard stuff. I have a um, Abelor Abuna, um, Ooh. batch number 59, what? and this is 60.9% proof. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a beefy one this one so i won't (laughs) so if i fall over halfway through the recording then you know why if you get increasingly rambling as we go on no that just happens anyway that's nothing to do with the whiskey that's just random trains of thought we record these at the end of what are usually quite long and busy days and uh, sometimes it shows 
<laughs> I, I've I've actually gone with whiskey this time because I, I figured that we should probably explore that path more. Um, I've got the Elijah Craig twelve-year-old bourbon, the forty-seven percent, um, the age statement one, which has actually now been discontinued, and I think I bought it from Marks and Spencer's on offer. But um, oh, you, I know you're not a bourbon man yet, and I will see about that. But um, yes, this is. This is what I believe they call the good shit. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe when we're allowed to meet up. We are actually allowed to meet up again outside now, right? But um, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm I'll a little... drive down to your house and yeah. just get sloshed in the park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have to be. It's pretty much like being a 17-year-old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Talking about cars and getting drunk. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's a pretty good segue into what dropped today, which is a new Fast 9 trailer featuring original Corona. Did you spot that? I didn't. They'd gone back to Corona. Corona beers are back in the Fast universe. Forget Han returning. This is the important stuff. (laughs) Anyway, have you watched the Fast 9 trailer? What am I saying? I know you've watched it because you sent me a tweet with it in. (laughs) But yes, having watched it, what what were your reactions? I think... When I saw the length of the trailer, I thought, "What? how can they stop this being a spoiler? And it's just... I don't think they care about that, to be frank. You just watch it going, Eh? What? Um, who? I mean, are they... They can't be. Are they? Is that a, is that a thing? Um, there, there's, a, there's some business going on with magnets, which I think is kind of clever, interesting, special effecty type stuff. Magnet plane. <laughs> magnet plane. I noticed that there is a, a Toyota Supra in it, which is painted in the same colours as Han's RX-7 veal side from Tokyo Drift, which is a nice touch. Oh, yeah, that's a good spot, which I did not see. Too busy looking at the Corona and the Magnet Plane and the Rocket Car and many, many other things. The other the Magnet Car they seem to have too, the Electromagnet Car, which is a thing. Mm. Let me tell you, my reaction was pretty much like, what the actual fuck? What on earth is going on? Um, <laughs> Basically. Yeah, is, is this a good idea? No. Does this make even a lick of sense? No. <laughs> Should they have stopped at Fast 8? Probably. Am I going to watch this anyway? Hell yes. <laughs> is The Rock in this one? I did not see him, but then... He and Vin Diesel have have issues. He's part of the family, so maybe he shows up. I don't know. Um, everyone's looking a little more rounded around the edges, I did notice in this. Um, there is pretty much all of the gang back. They managed to sneak in a video of Paul Walker um, mm. holding the little kid as a kind of off uh, outtake, which was kind of sweet and kind of sad. There is all sorts of shenanigans with cars. I mean, this is... <sighs> Let's face it, they're going to space. This is as as much vehicular mayhem as you can cram into a cinema frame. There's a shot where a car goes through a building and the camera follows the car as it goes through a building. And that shot, I think you look around somewhere, I think if you look on Justin Lin's Twitter feed, you can actually see how they did that shot, how they followed mm. the car through the building, which is fascinating to me. But the this is so weird. I guess... The thing that was kind of highlighted to me about how far this franchise has come was the tweet that you sent me was from Nerdist um, with an embed of the, the the trailer. And the first reply was, oh, my God, this is so rubbish. I can't believe we've all been waiting for them to do a grounded movie. 
and I can't. I, I mean, I didn't reply, but I couldn't help feeling like, dude, nobody's been waiting for that. None of these movies are grounded. They just get re, you know, increasingly more ridiculous until inevitably they end up in space. Um, one thing I would say, and we'll embed a link to the trailer in the show notes if you are so inclined to watch it and um, didn't get put off the Fast franchise for good after our never-ending recap series. Um, the YouTube comments on the trailer are pretty funny too. Somebody, um, a guy who's just called JG has got Fast and Furious 8, Dom has Secret Child, Fast and Furious 9, Dom has Secret Brother, Fast and Furious 10, Mr. Nobody is Dom's Secret Father, Fast and Furious 11, Dom's Secret Father and Secret Brother have their own secret children, (laughs) Fast and Furious 12, Dom's entire family has secret clones, Fast and Furious 13, Dom's secret family are actually the real family, Dom is a clone. (laughs) <laughs> Fast and Furious 14 Dom is the secret grandfather Fast and Furious 15 Dom was secretly dead the whole time but didn't know it <laughs> and that just about sums it up they are raising the stakes they're squaring the stakes as they go along you know here is a movie that has Dom's secret brother that was never mentioned in the previous eight movies that are all about family only he forgot to mention this part <laughs> of his family everybody's back um, Charlize Theron's back as um, that sort of cyber terrorist whose name I've forgotten because it was super memorable. Uh, <laughs> the entire gang is back. Most importantly, of course, Han is back and we get a, f- a bit more of a flavour as to how he's back here. They don't explain it, but they show the moment where he returns, which is pretty cool. Um In case you're worried that they are giving too much away in the trailer, um, Empire Magazine had a very quick catch-up with the director of Justin Lin uh, and he says that if you think they're giving away the whole trailer, the whole movie in the trailer, um, he says, I can promise you, even with these two long trailers, there's still a lot that hasn't been shared with the world. Um, Plot, dialogue. <laughs> you know, more corona any drinking. Any sense of reality. Yeah, any sense of... They, they're never going to share any sense of reality. <laughs> everything's bonkers. That's basically the, tra- the tagline for this. Fast 9, everything's bonkers. There's some really funny moments in it, but I did kind of rock on my seat after watching it going what the hell have I just seen? And I have a feeling that coming out of the cinema after watching this, I'm going to be feeling pretty much the same way. How about you? Probably. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see, because there's two more after this, aren't there? Because this, this is nine. And I think Justin Lin has signed on for 10 and 11. I think so. I've kind of lost track. We've given how, how much all of these things have shifted post-COVID. But this is due out, I believe, on June the 25th in the US, which is Mm. the same date as the original The Fast and the Furious came out back in 2001, I want to say. I might be wrong on that. The date, I think, is the same, but I think we in the UK may get it in July, assuming it doesn't get moved back like almost every other movie has. Moving on, you had a a, a bit of news that dropped in about an hour before we started recording the show. Yes, actual breaking news just dropped into my email because I am most trend subscriber, as we've often said that everybody should be who likes car stuff. And Motor Trend on Motor Trend TV, Motor Trend On Demand, whatever you want to call it, the video streaming service is closing later this year. So in the UK, it's closing as of the 18th of August. It's being consumed by Discovery Plus. And this is really interesting to me because Discovery, I always thought of it as one channel, but actually it's 
enormous. It's a huge conglomerate. They own Eurosport. They are, they have, um, I think they have film or like documentary units. They have reality TV. They have a dozen or more channels here in the UK. And excitingly, I logged on to Discovery Plus and Top Gear America with our boy Jethro Bovingdon is on there and it's viewable in the UK. Without VPN shenanigans. No VPN shenanigans. And even better than that, if you are a Sky Q customer, if you go to Sky VIP, it will tell you how to get a year's free Discovery Plus subscription, which not only works then on your Skybox, so you can watch it on the TV, but you just get a normal login, so you can watch it on your phone, watch it on your computer, or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. I do have SkyQ, so presumably I am eligible to get a year's free Discovery Plus. You are. But one thing I haven't done yet, and I won't do it now because it might ruin the recording that we're making at this moment, is turn on my VPN, VPN to the US, then try and access Motor Trend on Demand from what is effectively a US IP address. Mm. Does that still work? So can I still get into Motor Trend on Demand that I am paying for? So obviously if you go to Motor Trend on Demand and you're from the UK, you get shown this promo thing for Discovery Plus. But if you come to it in the US, is that also closing down as well and they're getting it via some other service or is this purely for UK customers? Um, it's a good question that I don't think we have the answer to yet, but I will figure it out. I didn't get a chance to do it before the recording, and like I say, I'm not going to jump on a VPN right now, otherwise the Skype call that we're on <laughs> will almost certainly die. Uh, but it does mean that you will be able to, if you have a SkyQ subscription and you want to get that Discovery Plus um, free year, you'll be able to watch Top Gear America in the UK for freezies, which is always good. Not that Plus, Motor Trend is very much money anyway, and I always feel like oh no. giving them the money is a good thing because they do good stuff. But it's a nice little nice little bonus. Let's move on. So we're going to have a bit of a Formula One theme for this episode, uh, just a little bit, because we've been so starved of Formula One, and now it's come back. It's back, and... Um, We've had one race so far this season, um, but we're going to review a couple of movies later on that we've been thinking about reviewing for a while. But first, you may have noticed in the previous episode, we did not mention Drive to Survive Season 3, and that is because neither one of us had finished watching it. Actually, no, that's a lie. I hadn't finished watching it. You'd binged the whole thing, but because I hadn't... 36 hours. (laughs) Because I hadn't finished watching it, we figured we'd hold off until we'd watched the whole thing and had time to, to, to talk about it through. So... I have now seen every episode bar the one about Hass because Gunter Steiner winds me up so much I can't actually listen to him anymore. <laughs> so, Drive to Survive Season 3, what did you think? I have thoughts. Let's start with the good stuff. I, I think that they are continuing the high quality of what they do. I think there's a lot of the good behind-the-scenes stuff, as you would expect. I think the expectations for this were huge. I think they have largely been met. I saw Will Buxton said that Drive to Survive had become either the most-watched or the number-one show on Netflix currently, so it's obviously finding an enormous audience. I keep hearing about people who have been introduced to the sport through watching it, or... Mm. People who I had no idea were interested in Formula One. Um, So one of the parents of kids my son goes to school with 
turns out that she was chatting to my wife about um, watching the whole of season three of Drive to Survive and then going, oh, there's more and watching all of those and talking about how, you know, how they disagreed with some of the drivers and and so on and so forth (laughs) and how much they don't like Christian Horner. More of that later. Um, (laughs) And it's just... I'm finding more and more people who have either found the sport or rediscovered the sport through this mm. series. So it's a hugely powerful marketing tool. And I think it's yeah. worth noting that MotoGP have said, where's our drive to survive? Because <laughs> I think they kind of want the similar impact, you know, the, a similar show, yeah. given the kind of drama that goes around motorcycle racing and I can see why it's been such a success. I find it kind of hard to believe that it is one of the, not the most watched show. Maybe it's the most watched in a certain demographic, but surely things like Bridgerton and so on will have, will have beaten it out for that. I suspect that because of the way that Netflix recommends things, if they push it, it can reach a large audience in a, in a short window and I think if you look at weekend or week by week stats, I think a lot of things will bubble up, have their week, and then it's the long tail after that. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was scheduled in such a way that there was nothing else competing with it, if that makes sense. I think the other thing to remember is that this is deliberately scheduled to land the week before Formula One racing starts again for the year. And we've just been starved of racing content across Mm. the winter. And with Formula One race, you know, Formula One seasons becoming longer and longer, you know, last year's ran into December. We're becoming accustomed to just a constant presence of Formula One on our screens. And... So when it's not there, you're kind of like, oh, what do I do? What do I watch? Where's my motorsport gone? <laughs> and having it suddenly land, you're like, woohoo, Formula One is back. Uh, and yeah. and then a lot of people I know just binge the whole series. I didn't end up binging the whole thing because I watched this with my wife because we're both Formula One fans and kind of life got in the way. So I think we watched two or three episodes in a stint and then a little break, watch some other stuff and then come back to it. The thing that struck me about the series is I was very interested to see how they handled COVID protocols, how that affected the kind of stories they could tell, um, how it affected the kind of moments they could capture in the paddock. They seem to have lent into the long lens from afar style of documentary coverage that you know maybe Big Brother and other reality TV shows start to use and that comparison is deliberate because there is a degree of reality tv to this now it's moved Mm. away from being a pure documentary they're leaning into the drama even more because i think maybe they've gone that's what people love to see they loved steiner dressing down his two drivers in season two um and they love it when you get a bit of juicy stuff going on in the paddock between cyril abitable and christian horner and so people have really you know, they re- people have responded to that, and so Box to Box and Netflix have lent into that for season three with mixed results. Mm. They're conjuring storylines out of nothing. The McLaren episode frustrated me enormously in its, its shameless attempt to try and build some sort of um, antagonism between Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris when having watched a whole season a whole two seasons of them racing with one another and, you know, seen Twitter feeds and interviews on Sky. There doesn't seem to be any problem with them 
and they mm. just kind of took one comment and one jokey dicking around thing that they do all the time and blow it all out of proportion. So it's it's leaning towards reality TV more than it used to. It's worth pointing out that Will Buxton did a very good This Week episode on his YouTube channel, which I don't know if we've mentioned. We should. It's very good. We have. I think you you mentioned it. Um, he's the, the This Week is a weekly highlight for me. It's really mm. succinct. Uh, and because it's Will, he and has... And Well, that's the thing I was going to say. Because it's Will, he has a broader view of motorsport than strictly just F1. So he goes into IndyCar, he goes into Formula E, he'll mention rallying, he'll mention Extreme E. And it's short, it's sweet, and this week's episode has him making vegan cookies while he's doing all the news, which I found <laughs> pretty amazing because that's some, that's some top-level multitasking. But I, th- I think the thing that really came out of that for me was that... In order for them to make the show, they had to embed with the team. So I think Will made the point that the Drive to Survive crew were all wearing team kit the week that they were embedded with the team. So when something happens at short notice, and bear in mind that these bubbles exist for a period of time and you know it's not easy to move from one to another, when something happens like Lewis Hamilton isn't racing... Um, in Bahrain, they can't react quickly. They're they're basically tied to whichever team they are for that race, and that showed. Yeah, it did show. It's 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 probably something that most people won't realise when they go. Well, what about that time when Lewis got COVID and couldn't race in Bahrain, and George Russell stepped up from Williams, the worst car or the second worst car on the grid, to the best car on the grid. No, put it nearly on pole position and very nearly won the race. And it's not mentioned. George mm. Russell even you know, tweeted out himself uh, like a, a gif of just a, uh, you know, when you find out you're not actually in Drive to Survive season three and just <laughs> a, a very blank expression. Um, that was an interesting one. Not showing Lewis Hamilton's amazing performance at the Turkish Grand Prix to win a Schumacher equaling seventh title. Um, mm. from, you know, something like sixth on the grid and, and in horrible conditions on a circuit that had no grip where it looked like Mercedes were desperately uncompetitive. And yet one of the frustrations I have with Drive to Survive, and I've always had it, is it does not tell the story of a season. And I suspect that's yes. more something I need to get over than they need to address because what I want is for them to acknowledge the story of the F1 season as a whole and what they're doing is bringing out the the stories inside the F1 season as a whole. I feel they do miss out on momentous moments because they happen to be focused on a different team at that time. And if if you're you know, if if that's what Will is saying that it's because they happen to be working with Haas that weekend and they just, from COVID protocols, they cannot suddenly send a crew to break away from that bubble and jump into the Mercedes bubble to speed to be with them. Then that's that. But they do miss an awful lot because they can't, they're not, you know, they're not agile. They're, they're stuck. And that mm. may well just be, that's just the way COVID has, has meant they have to tell the stories. But it is frustrating to me that they miss major moments of in the season, like George Russell racing for Mercedes, like Lewis winning a seventh title. It feels like an afterthought. It feels like Lewis Hamilton mm. and Mercedes are barely in this show. The most dominant and successful team in the modern era, possibly the most dominant and successful team in F1 history. And they are a footnote in this 
massive TV series. I think there is a gap for the non-sporting coverage. So I think that there is there's a lot of good racing coverage and I think it would be easy for this to skew towards being a season recap and I think they do very good work at specifically not being that. I think that they are too far away from it. I think the fact that, you know, Lance Stroll getting pole in Turkey, there's a moment where he crosses the line and, he, they, you know, he's like, tell me I've got pole, tell me I've got pole. And you don't get the fact that that was an incredibly tricky session and it it was his first pole and it was in a pink Mercedes. Yeah, they use it as part of the, the Racing Point episode, as it were, mm. where they, they're showing that they've got this fast car and they just use it to go, look, it's fast enough to get pole, but they miss the wider picture of how it was that they came to be on pole mm. because in under ordinary circumstances, they wouldn't be anywhere near pole position, but it just so happened that the conditions suited Lance and the car. And let's not forget, you know, that that was the most emotion and real personality i've ever seen from lance stroll you do not get that on sky when they do they do the interviews with him you don't get it in the features that moment on the radio where he's talking to his engineer was brilliant that is the most human i have ever heard lance stroll sound and it was wonderful and i wish you had more of it because he does not do well when he's a talking head in front of a camera it's clear Mm. he's uncomfortable um and that was that endeared him to me far more than any of his talking heads pieces about you know being really happy with the car and the team did really well and blah 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 blah. <laughs> it's in it's it's they do miss the context and then one thing I wanted to ask you: Have you noticed the kind of Basil exposition guy they used to do a sort of scene setting voiceover during the racing parts? Like the fake commentary. I think, yeah. I think it's Ben Edwards, isn't it? Is it really? Is it because I was thinking, is that like lifted and you know, amazingly edited from like Five Live or some or the Formula One TV app, or is this recorded after the fact as a Basil exposition? Let's tell the stupid people what's going on. I think when it's David Croft and Martin Brundle, that's it's the live, live coverage. commentary. Yeah, that's definitely because I watch those stuff. Yeah, when it's Ben Edwards, it's the, well, here we are at Imola for the first race here in Europe this year under COVID protocols, and hopefully this is the weekend, and you're thinking, yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's it's too on the nose. It's like the stuff you get in Rush, where you have one of the contemporary... Welcome to Brands Hatch, yes. 1976 British Grand Prix, sponsored by these people, and hopefully James Hunt might actually do something this year. You're like, yeah, yes. where you know darn well that that is not how the commentary went for that event. And it's just some some guy laying down the Basil Exposition track so that you you people in the, in the cheap seats know what's going on. And <laughs> again, that really grates with me because it's telling us stuff that it doesn't need to. It's laying everything out on a plane where I'm not sure you need to. Um, the good stuff about Drive to Survive, I think they handled Roman Grosjean's crash really carefully and really, really well. There was some yes. astonishing footage that you didn't see. Sky handled it live extraordinarily well by staying mm. away from close-ups. But in Drive to Survive, the episode they cover it, you actually see the camera angle that was pretty much panning with the cars as they went past suddenly whiz back to catch 
Grosjean's car on fire in the very first moments of the fire where you can just see nothing and you just assume the worst. And I, we were watching that live and, and both my wife and I mm. got up and walked away from the TV and c- almost couldn't watch until they were able to show an angle that you could see Roman coming out. But yeah, I thought you they managed to cover that really, really well. I thought Roman Grosjean came across really really well in his interview not as not as detailed as the one he did with Martin Brundle which I think we maybe have talked about before where he he has photographic recollection of the the whole incident but it's fascinating to see him with his wife talking about the whole thing and her rolling his eyes when he says he's the man who walked out of fire (laughs) is is one of the moments of the series for me I found the stories about Red Bull maddening I found Christian Horner astonishingly annoying. Now, I have huge respect for what Mr. Horner has achieved as a team boss, but he needs to be left out of season four. He is not the leader of Red Bull Racing. He is not Bernie Eccleston. He is not a mover and shaker. He is a front man. If you want to show the power behind Red Bull, then get Helmut Marko and Dietrich Makashitz on that show. Because Mm. Horner does not make any decisions. He stands there and spouts to the press, but the people who decide whether or not Pierre Gasly comes back or if Alex Albon gets a seat for 2021, that's Helmut Marko. That's not Christian Horner. He gets an unequal amount of airtime. When Toto Wolff gets, what, like two minutes, and one of those minutes is him telling the reporter, just repeating the phrase, fuck you. (laughs) I love that. When he was asked if there is a number one and number two in his team. Um, oh, no, no, no. He's, they said, um, they were asking him about um, Bottas being a good wingman, which had obviously gone down really well with Valtteri. Yes. Well, Valtteri does not like that term. Um, and and it's clear that Toto doesn't like that term, even if it might be accurate in some instances, and especially as seasons progress and it turns out that Lewis is in fact the best championship bet, I think that Toto is fair to his bones. And that mm. reaction was was jocular but sincere. But he's barely in it. You know, the most successful team boss of the modern era, the person who is able to corral a thousand people to pull in one direction who has led them to seven successive world titles. How is it that he gets so little time and Christian Horner is in every fucking episode with his fat, smug face just sat there thinking like he's bloody Caesar running the paddock? Was it um, was it Richard Porter who said somewhere that after the first drive to survive, he got the feeling that all of Christian Horner's mates in... Uh, Chipping Norton or wherever they live had all seen it and they all think he's this sort of big famous person now and They've now he's l- kind of playing up to it. Yeah, I think so and it could well be, forgive me Mr Horner if in the very unlikely event that you're listening, <laughs> it could well be that he's willing to give his time where the others are not. I imagine that yep, is very yep. much the case for Toto Wolf, who will go, look, we've got championships to win. Um you know, that's our loss. I'd love to hear more from Toto Wolf, but mm. because look at what he's achieved. But Horner seems willing to take part and provide sound bites in a way that not many of the team bosses, Gunter Steiner perhaps apart, are willing. Mm. And so 
we don't get a similar level of constant opinion and and soundbitery from Penfold, who runs Ferrari's team, or um, <laughs> there is a parochial reference if ever there was one. <laughs> the new Danger Mouse is actually pretty good. Have you ever watched that on? Uh, I iPlayer? haven't seen it, but that that is who uh, that's who he reminds me of just desperately. Yeah. Um, Did you notice actually when Bonotto was talking on the Ferrari episode? There's very, very much a Ferrari company line that whatever you might say that is negative about Ferrari, there's always the, but we are a great team, we are full of passion, we have a history, we, you know, we shall rise again. I thought their episode was very, very good. I mean, I, they were, it was really well put together. It showed, I think it gave a fair depiction of the team as it stands. Perhaps it was even... Um, not quite putting the boot in as much as they might have done. I think it was a very fair depiction of the team and I thought that was a pretty good episode of showing a team as it is without the resorting to the kind of storytelling gimmicks that they went for in the McLaren episode um, mm. where they were very clearly trying to line up Lando Norris as, as, a, as angling to replace Carlos Sainz and... Uh, and the, I don't even remember what the Mercedes... Did they have a Mercedes episode this year? They had a Valtteri episode. They had a Valtteri they? episode where you get Valtteri's arse in it for a moment or two. Um, <laughs> Valtteri bot arse. Yes, but were. all that made me do is go, Jesus Christ, these these guys are so in shape. I mean, you just the, the state oh, of God. them all, they're just so unbelievably fit that even someone who is clearly going to lose his hair quite quickly... Sorry, sorry, Valtteri. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan, but you are going to lose that hair. Um, oh, one thing I did really enjoy about that episode was Valtteri's girlfriend chatting when they were like at breakfast or something and he'd seen a tweet that had pissed him off or something and she made the point that people who do this who tweet at these superstars don't realise they're actually people who might mm. get hurt and that's genuine I mean if you have a Twitter feed you are kind of putting yourself out there especially if you're a sports person but equally that is a very true observation that just mm. people constantly tweeting Valtteri going dude you're so lame how can you get beaten every weekend it, it didn't quite that episode was a little one that didn't quite dig into what is it like to be competing with equal machinery against the most difficult competitor that might be on the grid you know the toughest guy to be compared to apart from perhaps Max Verstappen a Formula One legend. How do you pick yourself up race after race? They happen to be at the, the Russian Grand Prix where Valtteri's always gone well and, and Lewis has made a mistake and therefore that's given Valtteri the win. But what they didn't tell was the story across the season of just how Lewis is able to just pick himself up and then relentlessly go after wins that you feel that Valtteri wouldn't be able to do. Um I, again, they, they're not digging into the story across the season. They just happened to be with Mercedes, presumably, on that one Russian weekend. And they went, well, this is the story we've got. This is the story we tell. Um, mm. I'm trying to remember if there's anything else that really jumped out at me. Obviously, the, there's no Williams episode this season. There's no episode covering <sighs> as they went from being Williams to being Dorito Capital. Was that kind of short notice? 
it did kind of come out of nowhere, but they basically Williams yeah. just aren't in this episode. They aren't in this series even. They're just not featured. They just don't appear. Mm. George Russell, I think, appears in one passing thing where he's on his phone and says, sorry, I can't talk. I'm on the phone to my girlfriend. And then I think that's the sum total of Williams appearing in the show, which is a shame because I enjoyed Claire Williams being in that talking heads position. I really liked um, them bringing... Um, is it Jenny Gao they've got in as the other yes. F1 journalist talking head? Really that was really she was good. really good. It's it's a start in the right direction of kind of making up for the sausage fest that is modern <laughs> F1. Overall, I watched most of it. I enjoyed most of it. I it's a B. It's a B for me. It's like yeah, three and a half, maybe four out of five. If I'm feeling generous, doesn't quite scale the heights of the first couple of seasons just possibly because of covid restricting the kind of the way they could tell stories it's already been greenlit for seasons four and five so presumably 2021 and 2022 2021 is obviously going to be shot under the same covid protocols as 2020 which again may restrict the kind of storytelling they can do and the hope is that 2022 will mean they can be a bit more flexible but that means we get two more series of drive to survive which had me thinking how long can they keep doing this for I have a bit of a worry with Drive to Survive as a format. You've got this premise where, particularly at the moment, you have to follow certain teams on certain days and what have you, which is is, is a matter of, of just the way the world is at the moment. And I think that that's not their fault. It's just, just the way of things. One of the things that was a real miss for me in this series was the way that they tagged Lewis Hamilton's racism activism just onto the end of the very last episode. Oh, yeah, that was was... super weird because that was the running theme of the entire season. Mm. Uh, From the whole season, the We Racers One initiative, the End Racism t-shirts that all the drivers were wearing during during the the pre-race parade, taking a knee, all of that was just sort of tacked on at the end. And I don't know if it's because, again, Lewis wasn't going to give them much of his time. Maybe. And so they had one bit at the end of the season and they kind of lobbed it on there. But that was a very odd decision. That was odd. Yeah. But the thing that struck me, though, was that both Christian Horner and Zach Brown, who are both two people who are very astute in the way that Formula One, the teams and the sponsors are portrayed, both responded to, I think, more criticism this year about what you were saying about creating these storylines. Because there's always, even right back to the very first series, there's like, oh, they show shots from one race that actually are from another race. Or, you know, um, when, not Heidfeld, uh, Nico Hulkenberg, when he crashed at Hockenheim in the rain. If you watch that on Drive to Survive, it looks like it was like the last lap he crashed on when actually it was like 10 or 15 laps from the end. And you kind of think, okay, we're, you know, we're, they're, they're sort of playing with the reality a little bit. This year seems to have been a lot stronger criticism from the media, I think from some of the drivers, about what you were saying, about them creating these storylines, creating these rifts or this jeopardy where nothing exists. And both Christian Horner and Zach Brown have basically entered a Faustian pact where they've said, we know it's not real. We know these things aren't portrayed correctly, but so be it. We're willing to allow that to happen in the name of getting more eyeballs on the TV on Sundays. Exactly. So they're they're basically taking this approach of, we will allow the sport to be misrepresented 
in order to gain more viewers. And I think that is a really, really... I was going to say dangerous, but dangerous is the wrong word. It's a really bad premise, I think, to want your sport to be shown off in a way that isn't actually the case, given that we have monumental feats of sporting prowess. We saw that last year. We saw, we, we saw it in Bahrain. These are people, the drivers are at the top of their game. The engineers are at the top of their game. The amount of work on, you know, even boring stuff that you and I watch, like, you know, how they ship it around the world. And I think on the next episode, we'll talk about Formula uh, Extreme E because that's an entirely different thing. But all of this stuff is about the greatest people doing the greatest stuff. And if box to box go, well, you know what? Sky and all the people who pay a lot of money to cover the sport, they can talk about the sporting side. We'll talk about the people, about the situations, about the stuff that you don't see on the coverage. You think, okay, but show me something real. Show me, you know, Gunter Steiner ripping... Tearing a strip off those. That's the thing. That was real. That was real drama. That wasn't manufactured, you know, um, needle between Lance, uh, um, Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz. That was a genuine reaction to a genuine situation. And that's Mm. something that Sky cannot cover because they don't have the cameras in place and can't show because of all the language. And exactly. that's, it's, you know, the box to box and the people who make Drive to Survive are in a unique position of being favoured people inside the paddock now. And I feel like yes. manufacturing stories in a reality TV style is betraying that access in some in some ways. Now, it could be that we're just two old farts who are far too into F1 <laughs> and all of the casual viewers that this series is aimed at bringing into the sport are like, fuck yeah, make whatever the hell you uh, you like. <laughs> We're here for the crashes and the drama. And maybe that's true. But it, it rankles with me a bit and it makes me enjoy yeah. the series as a whole a little bit less. Also, just on that point, one of the producers was on somebody else's podcast and saying that they've got Series 4, they've got Series 5, and they've already had story calls with the teams for this year, for season four. And you go, well, of course they've got calls. You know, when Mercedes had their, was it their 50th anniversary, 100th anniversary? 100th anniversary, yeah. yeah. The one, the one where it all went dress. wrong. I mean, that was exactly. that was a great episode and sheer chance that Netflix happened to be embedded within the team. Exactly. In but, that, but what in it, that what show. That, but what that says to me, because of Formula One, because everybody at every level is competitive... There are PR teams, I am sure, who have all sat round and gone, right, we've got a call with Drive to Survive. What are our storylines? What do we want them to cover from us for this year? What can we give them? What can we potentially create? What can we offer them that will make us stand out? Yeah. And usually if you buy... A, you know, an autosport magazine or an F1 racing or, you know, particularly like, I don't know, an Evo or Road Rat or something like that. Those ideas rarely come from the people who are being covered. And usually those people are editors and journalists sitting down and going, I want to know more about these people. I want to know more about this team. 
and they drive the story. I want and to I tell a story a about, danger. but it's yeah, it's it's it, people who don't have an interest in exactly. Yeah, they they don't have a, a they they don't have to state a conflict of interest because they're mm. outsiders, they're independents who are not involved with the team, and now yeah, but perhaps that is the way that this series. It's the only way that this series can continue to grow and not just become stale telling the same stories of the same drivers. We've had a period of upheaval in F1 mm. where the drivers are the 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 eras of drivers are overlapping and you've got the new wave coming through your George Russell's Lando Norris's Carlos Sainz, Charles Leclerc, and you mm. have the old stages like Lewis Hamilton. Weird for me to say that because Kimi Raikkonen, Kimi Raikkonen. Yeah, no, I was I watched both of them make their F one race debuts, and in the um, the film review I'm going to do, which we should get to because we are like 57 minutes into this podcast and we haven't started talking about reviews, but that has footage of like a, a Lewis Hamilton from like 20, 2010, where he looks so unbelievably mm. young. He's not covered in tattoos and braided hair, and you know has a few lines on his face. He's smooth and shiny and Ron Dennis manicured. And, you know, there is a changing of the guard and I'm not sure. I mean, that's a great story. Why aren't they telling that story? Have we really seen a great deal of Max Verstappen in this series, in this show? I don't remember him being in this a lot. No. And and why not? Because here you have the next big thing the guy who's supposed to be the out and out fastest driver in f1 who would have won a million titles if it weren't for that pesky lewis hamilton and his (laughs) rocket ship mercedes and i can't really remember an episode where he's featured i i don't think he interviews that well i think i think with drive to survive it highlights people like daniel ricardo who are full of personality and they're good on camera and they're willing to talk on camera yeah whereas i think Max Verstappen is not. I think he's still quite petulant. He will do the bare minimum, whereas Christian Horner will go on and th- run b- brill cream through his hair and <laughs> smarm on about whatever he wants to. Uh... Yeah, he is starting to remind me more and more of Arnold Rimmer. <laughs> And I've done that just as Chris finishes his drink, so he can't spit it out. <laughs> <You> bastard. <laughs> but yeah, Christian Horner really is reminding me more and more of Arnold <sighs> Rimmer from Red Dwarf. And here's another UK parochial TV reference for anyone who didn't happen to be born in the late 70s, <laughs> early 80s and watch that seminal sci-fi show. Anyway, should we talk about um, Formula One films? We should move on to Formula One reviews. Now, we're going to have to race through these. So normally, Chris and I will waffle on for like 20 minutes each on our on our films, but... <laughs> Given how long we've waffled on about Drive to Survive and Fast 9, yes. we are going to have to motor through these. So do you want to go right. first or shall I? I? I will take a running jump at this and I will probably leave out a load of stuff and... You can come in, you can you can tweet us if, if we don't leave, if we don't cover these in enough detail and we'll, we'll go back Please and do them again. Do. Grand Prix. Definitely. So Grand Prix 1966, the second week in a row, I've had a film with an overture card and an intermission because this film is nearly three hours long um i've wanted to review this i I, i've never watched it prior to this last week gone past believe it or not and i've always been keen to watch it for one reason is that whenever you read any film criticism about cars you always get the same thing well it's good but it's not as good as grand prix and it's it becomes this really lazy cliche 
given that we now have cameras you can put anywhere you can mount them anywhere you can point them any which way you can run them all day long so going into this i really had two questions and i will keep this moderately short and i'll stick to these two questions one how does it compare to le mans the steve mcqueen film because as we've talked about in a previous episode steve mcqueen wanted to do the f1 film he got tied up on another film mgm wanted to do a grand prix film they ended up getting there first and there's some great footage from um, the Steve McQueen sort of foray into that, but that never became a film. Steve McQueen was also asked to play the lead character in Grand Prix, the James Garner character, and for s- s- reasons, he didn't. So it kind of ties in with those two. And as a result, Steve McQueen, as a bit of a fuck you, went off and shot Le Mans. Now, when I saw Le Mans, what really came across to me was that it's not a film with a story and a plot with characters. It is a love letter to the event. So it's long, moody shots. It's all um, just about the race, about the cars. The fact that there are people there is almost an inconvenience. The Grand Prix is a better film in terms of characters and story and plot and things like that. It's quite slow. It's not not a great film but it's not a bad film it's it, it's quite it's quite watchable um damning with the very very faintest of praise which gets us on to what we really really like about le mans about le mans about grand prix which is how they filmed it and what they filmed and all of this sort of thing and i will say that i watched this on uh, blu-ray if you've never seen it, if you have seen it and you want to rewatch it, if you want to see what Grand Prix actually looked like in the mid 60s, get this on Blu ray because the restoration that they've done on it is fantastic. Honestly, some of it, they've obviously filmed it with great lenses, with great crew, you the real drivers. Tell, with real drivers, well, which we'll get on, get on to in a minute. Um, where they're doing the kind of the, the the stage shots, you know, looking out in the crowd and what have you, it is pin sharp. They've chosen lenses really carefully, so it's shot beautifully. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not going to see sixties Grand Prix cars look better or hear them for that matter. The the sound no. for this is is amazing. Right from the shot that kind of once they get through the the weirdo multi screen credits. And it's just a shot of like an exhaust pipe and the wham, wham, wham of the of the engine as it's revved. It sounds astonishing. Yeah. And the thing, very briefly, to jump out, the thing that jumped out at me is even at the revival, I don't think you hear racing cars being hammered like this when they were in period when it was just a car mm. rather than a priceless, you know, artifact <laughs> yes. of a bygone age. This was just a thing that you raced and therefore you drove it to bits. And Absolutely. that's what you see in this film that you just won't see in historic racing these days. Anyway, carry on. The opening scene is all filmed at Monaco. So the first like 20 minutes, half an hour. And it's really odd now to watch cars going around Monaco in such clarity that it could have been filmed today. You know, there could have been a florist that one of the, the drivers was racing <laughs> towards. 
you see all the curbs. You see the shop fronts. They were racing past the the bridge before what's now that well, even then was the tunnel was like an overflow pit. It was it's all there on display. They've got helicopter shots. They've got low shots. They've got high shots. They've got handheld shots. They've got shots of everything, and it is beautiful. It is stunning. When you see the footage of the Belgian Grand Prix from Spa, it, again, looks beautiful. And you see these things, because they've got the helicopters, they're not just relying on static um, TV cameras and the resolution of those. It looks absolutely stunning. It is absolutely worth a watch, even if you just fast-forward through the bits where there aren't any cars in it. (laughs) It, Spoiler alert, it, it, it I've becomes, done that at least once when I've watched this movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a beautiful record of, of a certain era because they did two really, really clever things. The first one was they filmed it around the Grand Prix. So where you have, um, like I say, the Belgian Grand Prix from Spa, anything where there are lots of cars on track was the race. So it's not set up. They haven't gone back and got the whole grid out to to reform and do anything. They've actually captured the race with everything that goes on in the race. What they then did for the sake of story was that they, if there was an incident, they would then go back and recreate the incident. They would augment that incident. Um, they had the actors driving in the colours of people who were actually in those races. Jackie Stewart, um, his helmet, is worn by an Englishman, which I think for a Scot is probably one of the biggest insults around. You hear Graham Hill. I think Phil Hill has some lines in it. You hear Bruce McLaren talking, which is not something that we have a lot of record of generally. And there's a lot in there for the motorsport fan to sort of go through and, and, and pick off the bones. What it's famous for, of course, is the onboards. How they filmed it is, I mean, there's a documentary on the Blu-ray, which is almost, you know, whether you watch the film or not, watch the documentary about how they filmed it, because the amount of work that went into it is astonishing. There's a, there's a shot with the cars going through the banking at Monza, and that's steep, steep banking. But the the cameras are on like a floating platform so as the cars go up the banking the camera stays level and you appreciate just how big that how steep that banking is they have moving camera platforms so you see sideways and the 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 camera will actually pan round they had a gt40 race car as a camera car to go out and get footage and i think one of the things that I did notice was that not only do you see the actors driving, although they weren't driving either in the race or they weren't driving real F1 cars, they were Formula 2 or Formula 3 cars sort of dressed up with the bodywork and the exhaust. It's something that was so far ahead of its time in terms of getting the cameras into position where they could see the driver. They could actually see the driver was driving. They edit it well, so they've got cutaways for the steering and the... um, They've got these downward shots on the on the pedals, so you can see them like changing gear, which you know would never have happened. Um, some of the some of the special effects don't really stand up over time. You can see dummies rattling around in cars when they land or or go into the Monaco Harbour, uh, say la vie. The one thing that I think it does do really well is it uses the set on rendezvous angle 
So it's the really low camera right at the front of a car and it's vibrating. It's, it's you know, barreling through corners, particularly at Monaco, we got the barriers so close. And you get such a sense of speed, of movement, and it is thrilling. I think particularly now that we've got high-def picture, we've got bigger TVs. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. If you watch stuff, if you watch this kind of thing, these kinds of onboards with the camera mounted on the front of the car, close to the ground, on a 50-plus-inch television, it's so absorbing. Would I watch the film? Would I watch the film again? There's one other great story. Actually, I should add before I get to the conclusion of this. When they first went into the paddock and they said we're going to do a Grand Prix film, everyone kind of went a bit, hmm, not sure. Ferrari, Enzo himself said, no, you're not having us. No, we're not going to be in it. No, we're not going to touch it. You can't say Ferrari. You can't use the Ferrari logo. You can't show the Ferrari cars. No. They shoot Monaco, and um, Frankenheimer rings up Enzo Ferrari and says. Would you just watch the first bit of the film? And he goes, I don't have a projector. Oh, fine, I'll bring the projector. They take the footage from Monaco. They show it to old man Enzo. They fly in a projector and a projectionist and sound equipment and all this sort of stuff. And he watches like 20 minutes, half an hour of this and just sort of turns to Frankenheimer and says, whatever you need use the factory use the cars use the the drivers whatever you want please you know it's available to you and they have shots inside the ferrari factory they have these stunning tracking shots from a helicopter of ferrari cars that are so achingly sharp you forget that you know we all have gyro stabilized gimbals and stuff now you forget that this technology was so cutting edge, but it was just done so well. You, you know, these cars look absolutely beautiful. And I think the fact that they got Ferrari was a huge benefit. It's a great story. I've not heard that story before, but it, it's a brilliant record of a time in Grand Prix racing that we all kind of wish we had a time machine and can go back and witness. <laughs> and this is as close as you're going to get to a time machine. I think even digging through the the famous Bernie stroke FOM archives for the footage from this era wouldn't get you some of these angles because it's the kind of thing you can only no. get when you bolt a camera to a racing car. As far as the actual story of the film goes, the the, the the whole through line of the story it's a bit generic for me all the characters are a bit sort of wooden and and not very fleshed out and what carries it is the racing james garner's character i think james garner plays it very american all action hero square jaw keeps things kind of locked up inside sort of thing which which plays as kind of a bit cold did you know by the way there was nearly a grand prix 2 Oh? Uh, Frankenheimer, whose name I've, I've just completely blanked on his first name. John. John Frankenheimer. <laughs> Jeff Frankenheimer. <laughs> John Frankenheimer went to Bernie and said, I made Grand Prix, I'd like to make Grand Prix too. And Bernie said, I would love that, that would be fantastic. And he said, great, I will bring the crew. And Bernie said, you're going to write me a very big check. And then it never happened. One of the interesting things in the documentary, somebody said was i think it might have might have been peter windsor said you couldn't do it now you couldn't get all the teams involved you couldn't get the drivers and most of all you couldn't afford to do it 
you couldn't create a film about F1 that would create you know ever generate a profit because FOM at the time because this was a few years ago would have demanded so much money to do it that it would have just bankrupted any studio that's the thing look at would drive to survive would have been shot down by FOM immediately wouldn't it because Bernie didn't see the point and yet now that exists and look at what happened to Driven which was supposed to be a film about Formula One and Bernie told them to get lost and so they ended up doing it using champ cars and look at what happened there and look at Drive to Survive you know it's not like Netflix are paying huge sums of money to make this trophy F1 documentary you know F1 has now embraced it and I think actually one thing you've just reminded me about with Driven I think one of the things that I found difficult with Grand Prix was that it doesn't really have a great narrative arc through the film so like with driven you've got the old guy and the new guy rookie driver jimmy bly you're telling me that there is not rookie driver james garner's character whose name i have totally forgotten please forgive me so yes summarize grand prix it's not a brilliant film it's a great historical reference if you can get a copy of the blu-ray Watch it for the racing content. I think the racing content absolutely holds up. I think the way it's edited is really, really good. Um, the montage that you mentioned before, one of the credits is Sol Bass. Yes, he did that. He worked on the credit sequences, didn't he? And it shows... The credits and the montages. So any montage where it's all a bit airy-fairy, Sol Bass. And I think I think they work exceptionally well. Yeah, you've got more patience than me. I was just like, where's the car's gone? <laughs> Why is there, <laughs> like, in the overture when it's just a still frame of a close-up of the car and there's nothing else? And I'm just sat there going, when is this film going to start? I've been sat here for five minutes and nothing's happened. And then there's a, a footage of a dozen spanners all doing exactly the all same All changing much. the same spark um, plug at once, yes. Yes. So uh, watch it, absolutely. It, it's It's... The Blu-ray is actually surprisingly inexpensive, or at least it was um, when I last looked. It's not the sort of film that you would go back and, and watch with on, on, on hooks that are tented or otherwise. But yes, very good. Could it be done again? Probably not. It, does it stand up today? I think it does. Tell us about uh, One Life on the Limit. This is a documentary from 2013, released around the same time as Rush uh, and following on on the good work of Asif Kapadia's Senna documentary. This is directed by a chap called Paul Crowder, who's got a, a, an IMDb list full of um, documentaries and other similar kinds of work. And it has a narration in a very lazy, laid-back, laconic manner from Michael Fassbender. But loads and loads of talking heads. There's so many people in this. So the idea is that this is a documentary that serves two purposes. The first purpose is to tell a sort of whistle-stop story of Formula One racing since there was a Formula One championship through like six decades of the sport to the modern day at that point. Um, through archive footage obtain, obtained from the Bernie Library. So there's a bunch of footage as ever, much like Senna, that hadn't been seen before um there's talking heads interviews with an awful lot of people um you got mario andretti talking um 
John Barnard, Ron Dennis, Bernie Eccleston. You've got a little bit of the modern people like Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff from people like Nigel Mansell, a little bit of Nicky Lauder, Damon Hill, Jackie Ix, you know, a lot of famous names. And there's an awful lot of focus on safety because you've got this one, it's a running through telling the story of F1 from the 50s through to the sort of 2010s. And as it starts to tell that story, it's trying to tell the evolution of safety in Formula One. And this is where the documentary, I think, lands some big punches because it shows the evolution of safety and the evolution of attitudes towards safety from the 50s through to the 60s and 70s when, as Jackie Stewart puts it during one of the the Talking Heads pieces, somebody died on the same day in four consecutive weekends. And then the fifth weekend, he's racing at the Nürburgring Nordschleife in the pouring rain and the fog. And at the end of the race, he gets out of his car and the first words out of his mouth are, is everybody okay? And for us watching modern F1, you cannot really comprehend what that's like. Now, one of the things that is strange about this documentary is a lot of the Talking Heads footage appears to be recorded around sort of 2010, 2011, and then it's been edited much like Senna was, assembled over a long period of time to tell the story using the footage and the Talking Heads, and it was released in 2013. And what this means is the documentary portions about safety haven't aged as well as they would like as 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 you would like because it starts off with a big punch of Martin Brundle crashing in his Jordan in um Melbourne in 1996 uh his car rides up over the wheels of the car in front because everyone's bunching up into the first corner he's launched airborne and the Jordan literally snaps in half it's horrible to watch the accident even though you know he gets out of it fine it's a great opening thing because if you were to see, if you were to show somebody that footage and you see the car sliding off into the gravel and it's clearly snapped in half where the engine joins the, the, the rest of the car and you were to say, do you think the driver got out of that? I think a lot of people would go, no. And yet Brundle's able to get out and, and walk away and that kind of lays the groundwork for this documentary to say, this is where safety got to, here is how it got to that point where a driver can have such a horrible crash, get out, run down the pit lane, jump into the spare car and take the restart. Again, you know, that's quite a dated thing, they don't do that now, but at the time that was a thing. They show an awful lot of crash footage that maybe you haven't seen or maybe you weren't aware of. There's a few moments that are really moving. Um, Roger Williamson dying and David Purley trying to save him. His car catches fire Mm. and the camera stays with David Purley desperately trying to get help to flag the drivers down, to slow them down as they're all racing past this car in which a driver is burning to death. And I seem to recall that David Purley got the George Cross for that. I think so, yeah. Which 
you know, it's a remarkable, and he he wasn't able to save Roger Williamson's life. There's a there's a there's a moment where they they talk about three British drivers up and coming, of which Roger Williamson was one of the three. Um, all three of them died in F1 races um, because the cars were made out of cheese. You know, compared to current mm. you know carbon monocoques, these are thin, spindly aluminium frames that will fracture and bend and offer no resistance or no thought of absorbing the energies in an F1 crash that we're so used to seeing now. And so when a car crashes, it smashes into a thousand pieces, it snaps in half, and the driver is left exposed to hit whatever happens to be coming their way at 150 miles an hour. That was one of the bits that stood out to me hugely. The other bit is when it's telling this story of F1 from the 1950s through to current time, it starts off, you know, here's... here's, um, Fangio, here's him racing and, and doing brilliantly, and here's, here's these other drivers. And then it gets on to Jim Clark, who everyone describes as probably the best Grand Prix driver of his, of his era, possibly one of the best of all time. And they show footage from the weekend where he died at Hockenheim. And I'm not sure if it's an editing trick or if it genuinely is crowd response footage, but they have the tannoy announcing to the crowd that we regret to inform you that racing driver Jim Clark was has been killed um, at this race. And you see the reaction of the crowd, and there's a moment where just a lady just turns around with her mouth just open in absolute horror and shock. So I presume that can only be genuine footage from the time, because... Jim Clark was the best of them. He never took anything out of the machinery. He never took any risks. He was too good. For him to have died means anyone could die, and then they do. And there's this endless litany of deaths of of people dying when they shouldn't. Piers Courage dying. Uh, Ronnie Peterson dying because they weren't able to get to him in time, which resulted in the medical car that we all now know starts at the end of the Grand Prix train as they start off in there and follows them around at the first lap that started because ronnie peterson died because the medical people in monza couldn't get to him fast enough to save him they cover sid watkins joining the sport and there's a brilliant anecdote from from sid about i think it was maybe the german authorities not wanting to allow sid watkins as the official f1 doctor uh, on the premises and bernie says well that's fine we're all going then um we're gonna i'm gonna tell all the teams we're going if you won't let my doctor be here then we're not going to have a race and the promoter says well what do i tell the fans and bernie says you can tell them to go fuck themselves <laughs> and then it cuts you know and then they allowed mr watkins to to to, to work at the circuit and and he talks very movingly about the drivers as as he felt that you know, kids he had to look after because he was so much older than them and that's you know really moving he's got literal tears rolling mm-hmm. down his cheeks as, as he talks about it and you get to see the evolution and how Bernie in particular bringing on Sid Watkins and them then going you know what we need a medical car to follow the start of every Grand Prix because that's the time when drivers are at most risk and then they move on through the still continuing deaths until they get to Imola 1994, where now it's clear F1 is on everyone's TVs every other Sunday and a global Formula One icon dies. And they, because it's been covered in Senna, the documentary, and many other Formula One features, they don't really go into it very much. They show 
the onboard and then they cut away at the moment where the camera cuts and then they talk about Senna's death. They don't show the accident. They don't show anything from the time. They then talk about the effect that had on safety because this is an era where everyone wants to know why the driver died, which they never asked in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. That stuff works brilliantly, but... It does jump around a lot, particularly with the footage that they're showing you. The racing footage, you'll be following someone around in 1996 and then it will drop to like something from the mid 80s and then it'll go back to a driver from the mid 90s. It's all a bit, they're trying to put you in the in the driving seat or give you a, an atmosphere for somewhere like Monaco or somewhere. And, and it, it flits about a bit like that, which I found quite frustrating. Um, a lot of the modern drivers have very, very little to say that is interesting or insightful. I don't know if this is because they weren't given much time or they just didn't care, but honestly, they don't have anything interesting to say. And one moment where a very young, compared to now, Lewis Hamilton says something about that, that he likes the danger. It's almost like you have control of the danger in a film where you have literally just watched somebody burn to death is extremely incongruous and upsetting. And I imagine if you were to ask the same drivers like Lewis Hamilton, like Jensen Button, if you were to ask them the same questions now, their answer would, would be significantly different. The other thing to mention is this ends with a title card that says, since... Um, Ayrton Senna's death in 1994. No Formula One driver has been killed in a race weekend since. And that was almost immediately out of date because Jules Bianchi had an accident at Suzuka in 2014 and very sadly passed away from his injuries in 2015. And that was a race weekend. And, and lessons were learned from that and incorporated into things like the virtual safety car that we have now. And the fact that if there's any safety vehicles on the track at any time, they tend to throw a full-blown safety car. And the halo as well. Also the, uh, the, the halo, which is, I mean, when I watched this through, I felt like this could do with having a a remix or a, a new version because so much has been done over the last five years to do with safety that it feels like that documentary is just desperately out of date. And the current driver's attitudes, I think, have changed since 2010, 2011 because of Jules Bianchi, because of Antoine Hubert's accident at Spa in 2019 and because of Roman Grosjean's incredible escape from the flames we talked about earlier mm. in Bahrain in 2020. I think... The drivers are now where they are still mortal and they are still exposed and they are still in danger. They could still get very hurt. And so I feel like the sort of blase, it's almost as if you're in control of the danger quote that Lewis comes out with. There's no way that 2020 Lewis Hamilton is saying something like that. No. My final thing on this, it's it's a fun documentary and there's some amazing footage and some really interesting thoughts from from particularly from the drivers of the era Jody Schechter Michael and uh, Mario Andretti <laughs> not Michael Andretti <laughs> Mario Andretti um Jackie X has got some interesting insights Jackie Stewart of course is interviewed because of his relentless drive for safety the one driver that stood out from the modern era was Michael Schumacher because this was at a time when Michael Schumacher had returned to Formula Racing with mm. Mercedes. And given that Michael Schumacher has not been seen in public since his accident uh, while out skiing, it was kind of moving to see a healthy Michael Schumacher talking about Formula One and talking about safety and his thoughts about it when we have no idea whether he's even still alive. And 
that I found that quite quite moving to watch. Is it a great Formula One documentary? No. Is it a good watch if you're interested in how Formula One got to how it is, where it was at the sort of 2010s? Yes, there's some fantastic footage. There is some really moving stories told about the drivers who sadly lost their lives. It's a lot better than a BBC documentary that was aired a little, a few years earlier called Grand Prix The Killer Years, which is exactly what it suggests. It's just a litany of crashes and it it was horrible to watch. This takes a much better stance on that, but it's still flawed. What did you think? I watched this around the time of Senna when it came out on DVD and I, I took against it then to the point that I got rid of the DVD um stupidly the so rewatching it a couple of days ago specifically for this there were two things that struck me one was that the documentary is actually very well done i think they make it look very easy i think it's easy to overlook how well particularly researched that documentary is the footage that they find etc cetera, etc cetera. i think i think that is really good it doesn't change the thing that put me off it, which was it has almost a fetish, I think, for death. I think that they really labour the point of all these people that were killed and how they were killed. And they build them up and then they kill them off. And it it isn't about life at the limit. It's about people who die. And it doesn't do it in a way that is constructive necessarily i think that i think if you look over the whole piece that there are there is an arc of it was acceptable now it's not acceptable now there's a lot of people now we need to do something now we've changed things now you know senadize and 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 so on but it's still i think it's too much about the people that were killed and it 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 bothers me that it has this this focus it has this emphasis because i don't want to watch a documentary where people are repeatedly having big accidents and dying i think i think it can be used for effect and i think that the 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 driver that you mentioned i think is particularly affecting because his body language just conveys oh, it's the heartbreaking. When you watch him towards the end, when he's he's pretty much given up, he knows that the driver inside the car has passed away, and the marshals aren't helping. No, the marshals are just you. Your heart feels yeah. for the guy. The other one I would mention, and I, I'm sort of in agreement, but also sort of not. I feel if you're going to tell the story of Formula One through this era, you cannot avoid talking Agreed. about the safety aspect of it yeah. because it is it is critical to how formula one has evolved how the cars have evolved and how the, the attitudes have evolved the other one that, that really hit home for me was francois sever jackie stewart's teammate with uh, at, at tyrrell and it's clear that he was a talent. He was up and coming. And they even say, you know, Jackie Stewart's downloading everything he knows about Formula One racing because he's going to retire at the end of the year. He hasn't told anyone he's going to retire, least of all his wife. Um, but he's going to retire and he wants to tell this new up and coming young gun um, that 
uh, this is how you go about being a Formula One driver and how you be successful. And they talk about him as the next big thing and they don't show his accent because I don't think any footage exists. What they do show, which is probably more affecting, is the reaction to the news of his accident. And I think it's Colin Chapman that they have a camera angle on with the Lotus team. And and he's, his reaction is just... It's typical British. I think he just says something like, severe, bloody hell. There are no tears. There is no... There's no the kind of sudden shock that you would get from a modern day accident like that. But there's a sort of, oh no, not another one. And then life carries on. And I don't feel like you can leave that stuff out. I get it. It is just, I mean, I, I watched this, I think I showed it to my dad a few years ago when mm. he came to stay with us, just for something to watch. I thought, him hey, you might enjoy this because he watched Formula One during this era. And it is very clear there's a point where the movie kind of kicks into almost for want of a better phrase, death mode, where it is just race after race, death after death, death, death. And Mm. I don't think you can shy away from that point when you are making a documentary about Formula One. The thing is, it doesn't go with the life on the limit, here is the history of Formula One. It kind of shifts focus from being here is a potted history of F1 to here is how safety evolved in F1. And it it doesn't serve both masters well. It very much leans on the latter. And and I can see if you were expecting a, a documentary about what it's like to race on the limit but not over it, then you would be disappointed. One thing that I did, kind of kind of accidentally, kind of spontaneously, was after I watched this, I started watching Rapid Response. Oh, that's the IndyCar one, isn't it? Yeah. The IndyCar one, which is absolutely a documentary about safety. And it is unashamedly, here's what was happening. Here's what we did. Here's the problems that we found. Here's how we rectify those problems. It is a documentary about safety. It's very good. It's worth, we'll come to it in, in another episode. I've wanted to see that. I've really wanted to see that because IndyCar is where more of the risk is these days quite apart from Grosjean's freak accident in Bahrain yeah more drivers have been killed in Indy cars in recent years than have been killed in F1 cars you know I can I can you've Mm. got your you have Justin Wilson you've got Dan Weldon You've got Dario Franchitti who his career was ended by an you know an Indy car shunt that basically was the too many concussions and and had he kept on going he might well have mm. lost his life you know it, it, IndyCar racing particularly oval IndyCar racing is astonishingly dangerous even now when you look at some of the accidents from Indy 500s even just a couple of years ago where the cars are flying into the catch fencing and bits are flying off it's a wonder that more people aren't hurt and it's wonderful to see that IndyCar much like F1 has embraced some form of head protection for drivers um, they've not gone down the halo. They have the what they call the aero screen. So anyway, I, I, I wanted to watch Rapid Response. I recommend it, and I, it's definitely one we should pick up in another episode because I think that that is kind of what I wanted from this documentary if it had a different title. That's that the thing. It's, it's, it's trying to do two things, and I don't think it does either one justice I, well that's not fair i don't think it does the life on the limit here's the glamorous world of formula one has it progressed 
it mm. it leans too much towards the safety angle, which I enjoyed because it tells a story that I feel needs to be told, but it does it better than Grand Prix The Killer Years. Yeah. Um, but also, it, given that it was mostly recorded in 2010, 2011, and then only screened in 2013, it is also dated quite quickly because of mm. you know, the subsequent accidents that have happened and the progression in Formula One safety so that we now have you know even better wheel tethers so they don't get flying off into the crowd. And we've got the halo, which has saved probably three or four lives. Um, easily. Easily. You know, Charles Leclerc probably owes his Formula One career to having the halo when he first raced for Sauber and someone slid mm-hmm. over the top of his car and left a tyre mark on his helmet. You know, there's, there's some amazing progression that's happened since this was made but i think it's worth a watch because of the the incredible footage you're going to see and because it tells a story that if you you're not really aware of just how dangerous it was being a formula one driver in the 60s and the 70s then you're gonna want to watch this agreed Agreed. Right, we need to move on because, God, we've gone on for a long time. So let's whiz through. Well, do you want to skip what has Henry Catchwell been up to this week? Because I'm going to admit right now, I haven't watched this video. Neither have I. So Henry Catchpole has released a video about the Peugeot, as you spelt it, Peugeot 508. <laughs> My you YouTube know? picks for this week. Do you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to stop and explain why I've done that because <laughs> in, in the brilliant... Uh, documentary Truth in 24 and Truth in 24 um, Every Second Counts two. the two two yes. every, yeah. um, the American commentators don't pronounce Peugeot as Peugeot they pronounce it as Pujo <laughs> <laughs> so I, whenever I think of Peugeot I think of the American commentators saying the Peugeot so I've written it in our <laughs> show notes that says Peugeot and then afterwards in brackets <laughs> Poo <laughs> also Henry Catchwell coming to the intercooler excellent right my YouTube pick I don't think we've talked about Driftworks, either the channel or the stuff going on on it. So Driftworks is a car parts business in Birmingham run by a guy called Phil Morrison and somebody else whose name I've forgotten, Richard something or other. Phil has been building a Lamborghini Murcielago GT1 replica with actual GT1 bits on it. It is ridiculously low. It's fantastically well finished and... They did a reveal photo shoot and video shot by our friend Al Clark. Um, and if you've ever wondered how they do those big, glossy, massive light box in the ceiling Infinity Cove type setups, this is a great view on that. You even see somebody painting the dirt off the floor during the shoot. <laughs> uh, also, George Williams is in it as well because they do a video and photo shoot all in one go. Yeah, he shot all the photos. I saw the photos shoot from that car and it does look spectacular. It's got the vents on the, the front wings. It's got a ridiculous yep. diffuser on the back. Uh, it's got an exhaust that is... I think unsilenced and there's a Lamborghini V12 basically shouting at the top of its voice the whole time. They've been doing a series of videos so that when they re- when they release the video they've had build videos before, after, during. They have all sorts of project cars that they're current, continuously working on. They go off and do track days. It's just a group of mates mucking about with some very, very very special cars um phil's got a 964 rwb which he he went and imported from japan the video 
of him getting that because he actually picked up in Japan, drove it around, and brought it back. That's well worth a watch. Driftworks channel, that's my pick. The uh, Murcielago behind the scenes video is my video pick of the day. Marty, what's yours? I've got a video that uh, Alex Brundle tweeted out just a couple of days ago, um, but it's from his work with Adrian Flux, and it's actually a couple of months old and has, as of I think when I looked at it, it was something like 300 and something views, like 363 what? views. As in, it's ridiculous. This is a brilliant little like 16-minute feature of Alex Brundle driving uh, three iconic classic cars, the Lola T70, Jaguar D-Type and Jaguar E-Type, um, talking about his experiences of driving them and how they relate to racing modern LMP2 cars, um, what it's like to race them and... It's so good. It's got great footage. Alex is unbelievably articulate about how these cars feel to drive, how they relate to modern machinery, what it's like as a driver compared to what it's like racing modern machinery, the differences you can make as a driver. It's uh, like a 16-minute encapsulation of why he is so good as a driver-turned-pundit or driver slash pundit, rather. That's probably fairer to what he does. He races and he he does commentary. He is clearly going to be something special in the classic racing world and the TV broadcast world. It's really good. Let's get it beyond like 363 views. <laughs> so um, Alex Brundle driving three classic racing cars. Uh, and my channel pick is uh, Wrench Every Day, which is... Tavares's like side channel uh, that he does with Jared, who pops up in in a lot of his videos, uh, and it's sort of slightly more down to earth cars, slightly less crazy builds, like the the sort of the, the wacky, hey, I'm going to rebuild a Merch Lago from Fast and Furious, or I'm going to you know, buy a, a Civic Civic turned Civic into a Veyron. A Veyron. Yeah, exactly. This is slightly more down to earth stuff. So they're doing a, a, a Lotus Esprit at the moment. Um, they're covering Jared's new truck. It's a bit more down to earth, but still that kind of good Tavarish and Jared banter content. I've also been enjoying like a ton of other stuff. I still maintain that the um, Mighty Car Mods disrespected Civic build is my favourite series of the moment because. They are so genuine, um, like mates building a car that they don't really like <laughs> and, and learning along the way and constantly punching one another in the nuts and <laughs> throwing bits in the bin. Honestly, while Wrench Every Day is my channel recommendation, but if I had to say go and watch something right now, I'd be like, go to Mighty Car Mods and watch the disrespected Civic build because I love it. <laughs> it's the thing I look forward to most of all. So that's our YouTube picks for this pod, in fact. And we really need to get going because this now says we've been talking for an hour and 48 minutes and I'm going to have to cut this down to an hour and 20, which will still be the longest pod we've done. So I want to say... A type 45, a, sir? No, type for type 45 times two. I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please let everyone know, share and enjoy the love for the Automovie Podcast. Um, if you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about, please hit us up at Automovie Pod on Twitter uh, and in the meantime, I think we're all going to go off and nail ourselves to the TV for the Imal... Im, what is it? The Imola Grand Prix. It's the Emilia Romana Grand Prix or something like that. But we're all going to be watching Formula One this weekend. Do enjoy and we'll see you in the next part. Bye.